Walker here this morning, and I, I want to take this opportunity to uh, plug one more time what was already mentioned, our Singing with the Spirit workshop that's coming up here in just about another month. And that'll have a, a number of activities, classes Friday night that are primarily designed for all of us here to help us understand what we're singing and why, classes Saturday morning that'll work with people who, who lead singing or, or want to lead singing, and then a big area-wide singing that we're hoping to get people from other churches to come to Saturday night. Uh, but along with that, we worked on this Wednesday night, and so those of you who were here will know about this. I want to make the rest of you aware. We have these postcards printed out that I would encourage you to take and write little personal notes. There's space at the bottom. It doesn't have to be much, you know, no more than, uh, I don't know, Kelly, sure wish you could make this, Bryant, something like that. And uh, send this to people that we all know people in other area congregations. Send this to them personally. Give them an invite. And uh, we also have this trifold here that has all the detailed information, schedule, and what this is all about, front and back. Uh, these are probably better to be handed out personally. And while the primary audience for this outside of this church is going to be people in other congregations, it, it could be that you know someone that goes to another church that uh, you've been inviting here and that maybe they like to sing or something like that, you can invite them on Saturday night. Well, here's a good way. Just hand them this. It's pretty passive. You don't have to do very much. But uh, both of these materials are out there on the table by the door. So if you haven't sent any of these out or if you thought of some more people from Wednesday night, I encourage you to, to take those. You can even bring them back up here to us. The postcards will mail them for you to make sure they get in the mail if you're afraid that you'll forget that sort of thing like I would. So... Uh, Please take an active part in that and be sure that you yourself are here to attend that. As we begin this morning, I want us to think about the fact that there are many people throughout the world in many different types of need. And I want us to consider a few of those areas of need this morning. First of all, there's hunger. Much of the world's population goes to bed hungry each and every night. According to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, some 815 million people, that's roughly 10% of the world's population, is chronically undernourished. Now, all of us here in this room are blessed to live in the United States. This is a land of abundant natural resources. Most of us don't know what true hunger is feels like. In fact, the average American consumes about a thousand calories more a day than is necessary, which is an alarming statistic if you start to consider it in the aggregate of 300 or so million people. But even here in this country, there are some in poverty, some who struggle with hunger or who are at least what is referred to as food insecure. That is, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. We owe our concern to these people. Then there's the problem of sickness. Throughout this country, there are thousands of hospitals and multiple thousands of people who are admitted to those hospitals every year. In the last year with statistics, 2017, some 36 million Americans were admitted to hospitals. And of course, beyond that, there are millions of people who actually might need medical attention but who are beyond its reach. Imagine here, if we didn't have our little hospital in this community, how far you would have to drive to go to an emergency room, half an hour. 
And yet, as small as it is, there are people who've gone to the emergency room here I know of whose lives were saved because they got immediate attention and they sent them on to a larger hospital that could meet their needs more effectively. Well, now consider the fact that liberty is hardly that isolated compared to a lot of places in this country. What must it be like to live in a place where you need medical care or a family member needs medical care and for that to be beyond their reach? When we talk about illness, one of the most difficult of all problems is mental illness. Perhaps it's because it's something that's so difficult for most of us to understand. Or perhaps it's because, unfortunately, even in this day and age, there's still a certain social stigma attached to it. Of course, our minds can become sick just like any other type, any other part of our body can, and it shouldn't be something that we're embarrassed about, and yet, because of that, sometimes people or family members are embarrassed to go and to seek help for these conditions. And yet, each year, on average, about 44 million American adults, that's roughly one in five of the adult population, is treated for some form of mental illness within that calendar year. There's perhaps no problem that's more difficult for a family to face. People in this condition need and deserve our help. Then there are others who face the general sort of need of some sort of distress that they encounter. There are people who have to deal with burdens, with difficulties that are just frankly beyond their ability to bear. Uh, Just imagine, for example, a young mother who's given birth to a couple of children and then suddenly one day the husband up and leaves. They're facing financial difficulties. They're facing emotional difficulties with the disintegration of the family. There's a tremendous burden that's placed on the children. And unfortunately, we know that sort of situation is all too common. And that's just one example. We could think of other examples of problems people face on a regular basis in their home lives or in the workplace. These problems that place a tremendous burden on those involved. Often, these people need our help. What about the need for employment? During the recession about a decade ago, uh, we faced a roughly 10% unemployment rate. It lasted that way for a while. Now, thankfully, in recent years, it's come back down under 5%. But what they call the U6 unemployment rate, that is not only the unemployed, but also the underemployed, those who should have a better job because of their skills, and the discouraged, those people who've just stopped seeking a job because they're finding no luck. That's hovering around 8%, and it's been there for quite a while. What must it be like to have a family that's in need of food, in need of clothing, in need of shelter, and to want to work and to be able to work, but to not be able to find a job to provide for them? People in situations like that, It can make them feel helpless. It can make them feel like failures. These people need our concern, and they need our help. Still others who have a great need, those whose parents are gone. Now, in this country, no child will ever go permanently without any sort of home. But 
in many cases, this is left up to governmental agencies, which have all the limitations that come with impersonal and professional care. So of the 400,000 or so children who are in the U.S. foster care system, at any one time, about 100,000 of those are waiting for adoption. And each and every year, 20 to 30,000 of them age out without ever having been adopted into any sort of home, without families. But these at least still have some care, some home of some type, even if it's professional. That's not the case in so much of the world. In other countries, those who are orphaned, sometimes they live on the streets. Sometimes they're forced to find food wherever they can beg for it, perhaps steal it. People in these situations, these children, they need our help. What about prisoners? In the prisons throughout this country, there are many people who've seen the error of their ways. They want to reform. They want to turn around to a better life. These need encouragement. They need our help. Think of some boy in his late teens or in his early 20s who in a reckless, irresponsible moment commits some crime and he's incarcerated, but over the years he comes to realize the error of his ways and he, he wants to reform. He wants to live a better sort of life. Well, what, what would it mean to someone in that situation for some Christian to help point him in that way, to offer him guidance, to offer him encouragement, maybe even to offer him a job when he gets out of prison? I think in this instance of a story I told in a sermon on Sunday night some months ago, a lot of you who were here will remember this, of Clyde Thompson, who was a man incarcerated for murder when he was a teenager. He was responsible either directly or indirectly for several other deaths during his incarceration. At one point, he was sentenced for, de for death until that was commuted. But ultimately, through the guidance of some Christians, he became a Christian himself. He started a prison ministry through his efforts there behind bars, and then after his release, thousands of people were converted. So what sort of impact did Christians have in his life? This is definitely a place where Christians can render help. Then there's the inevitable problem of aging. Each and every one of us will face that. As we grow older, there are simply some things that we can't do as easily as we once could. And that can be discouraging, at least as far as this life goes. Or what must it be like for someone who's retired and maybe they didn't have enough money set aside and maybe their children are either unable or unwilling in some cases to help take care of them in their advanced years. People in this situation need our encouragement they need our attention. Maybe in some cases, they even need our financial help. Or then there's the opposite end of the spectrum. Those who are young people and who are unguided in their youth. Each and every year, about 1.2 million students drop out of high school, and most of those are just aimless. They drift around seeking some sort of job, but of course, they can't really find one because they don't have the skills. Sometimes they end up even turning to crime or joining gangs so that they can have some sort of, of system of a family-like structure to at least some extent there. Many of them have come from homes where they were taught few basic principles. They don't have any guidance at all. Well, what would it mean for some young person who's dropped out of school and who's maybe facing the possibility of that life of crime for a, a Christian to take them and move them to another part of the country and to try to instill in them these principles and to try to mold and to shape them. 
it would be difficult. But imagine the impact it could have in that young person's life. And of course, even if they don't fall into any of these other categories, there are still others who need our help. There are literally millions of people in this world who are perfectly healthy, they're prosperous, and yet their lives are mired in the grossest kind of sin. Now, we know that one of the primary purposes of the church is to try to reach out to these people and lift them up out of sin through the gospel of Christ, and yet how often is it the case that these are the very type of people that we're most eager to avoid? We don't want the really bad sinners. They have a reputation. They might ruin our respectability. Don't you know about that guy? We don't want his type around here. And yet Jesus came for the purpose of reaching out to these people. Each one of them has an eternal soul. Each one of them is made in God's image. When Christ came to this earth, he came primarily to save people from sin, to deliver them from that bondage. Remember what the angel told Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. But what I want us to think about today is that Jesus might have come primarily for that purpose, but he also came to help people in whatever condition he found them in. He fed the crowds when they were hungry because he was worried that they might faint before they got home. He reached out and he touched and he cleansed lepers. He cast out demons. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He took limbs that were useless and made them strong and powerful and full of life. And he lifted up people out of sin. Over and over and over again, Scripture affirms he had compassion. And when we think about that, if we as Christians are committed to following in his steps, we need to have compassion too on just these types of people that we're talking about. And I want us to consider just a few examples that our Lord has given to guide us this morning. The first one comes from Luke chapter 10, our text that Joseph read a few moments ago, at least the beginning of it, the setup where someone comes to Jesus to test him, to ask him about the greatest commandment. Jesus asks him, and he says, well, you need to love God, and you need to love your neighbor. Jesus said, you're right. And then he tries to test him, and he says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. 
Now, this story, of course, occurred 2,000 years ago on a different continent. We have people involved of different religions and races, and yet it's every bit as relevant today as it was then. Because the religious people, the priest, the Levite, the very ones you would expect to stop and to render aid, they passed by on the other side. It was left to a Samaritan, a foreigner, an outcast, a hated enemy, social pariahs as far as Jews were concerned, to stop and to render aid to this man who was left there beaten half dead, lying in a ditch. You see, part of the point here is that we who are religious can sometimes be so preoccupied with our own things internally and we can be so self-assured of our own goodness that we don't look and see these opportunities to practice our religion staring us right in the face. Consider another example also from Luke's gospel. This takes place in chapter 4, early in the ministry of Jesus, and it's at actually the outset, sort of the inauguration of his ministry. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth, as was his custom, and he stands up there to read And the selection he chooses is from the scroll of Isaiah, chapter 61. It's a prophecy about him. And he says in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This passage is programmatic for his ministry. He says this is what it's all about. And look at how it's good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind. Another example, the setup of which is really similar to that we saw with the lawyer coming to Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. On one occasion, a rich young ruler runs up to him and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And they go back and forth about the commandments a bit. And then ultimately, Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Again, from Jesus, maybe one of the most disturbing passages in this regard comes when he tells us how we need to use our material goods to help those who are truly in need. In Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, if we let our minds roam through the New Testament, we'll remember that this emphasis isn't limited to Jesus. There are a number of places that talk about this concern we ought to have for those who are in need. A good example that comes to mind is from Galatians chapter 2. Paul talks about going down to Jerusalem with Barnabas. This is after he'd been evangelizing the Gentiles for some time. And he meets with Peter and James and John, the pillars of the church, and the whole subject is his Gentile ministry. And they extend to him that right hand of fellowship. They give him his ble- their blessing. But they give him one other charge, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. 
One more passage along this line outside of Paul comes to us from James, the Lord's brother. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? We could continue on citing passages like this, but I think maybe the most ominous one of all comes to us from Jesus' picture of the last judgment in Matthew chapter 25. And if we didn't have any other passage in the New Testament to teach us about this responsibility that we have to those who are in need, this one would be sufficient. And I want you to listen to this reading at length. But really think about the fact that we're all going to be in this position one day and the words that he speaks to us will be spoken to us personally here in one way or another beginning in verse 31 when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him then he will sit on his glorious throne before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he'll place the sheep on his right but the goats on his left then the king will say to those on the right come you who are blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they'll also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and didn't minister to you? Then he'll answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into, away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Christ is our example of unselfish service. As he says to us another place in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must become your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, if we are really going to be Christians, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to follow in his steps and do likewise. 
And all of this is of crucial significance, and this has been on my mind for for some years, and it resurfaces from time to time. But I know of some brethren, some preachers, actually, who argue that the sole mission of the church, the sole mission of the church is evangelism. And that when you talk about ministering to physical needs, they dismiss that as just a social gospel. We're just trying to bribe people here by helping them out and getting them in here. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. The mission of the church is threefold. It's evangelism, it's edification, and it's benevolence. Or to put it another way, the church continues the ministry of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, Luke is talking about his gospel that he wrote, and he said his previous book was everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And if you've been here on Wednesday night in our Acts class, you've heard me say this several times. You've probably gotten sick of hearing me say it. But it reminds us that the history in Acts, the history of the church, is what Jesus continued to do. The church continues the ministry of Jesus in the world. Or to use Paul's frequent metaphor, we are the body of Christ. We're his hands, we're his feet here in this world today. So what Jesus did, the church does. Well, what did Jesus do? Matthew summarizes his ministry this way, and he says that he was teaching in the synagogues, that's edification, building up God's people, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, that's evangelism, and healing all manner of diseases, that's benevolence. That's Matthew 9, verse 35. And then he actually goes on in the very next verse, and he says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Or we might consider the way that Peter sums up Jesus' ministry. His sermon to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, he went about doing good. That's as succinct as you can make it. Of course, seeing to people's physical needs was part of Jesus' work in this world. Luke chapter 4, we read it just a few moments ago. He himself lays out that that's part of his purpose. It's an impoverished gospel that views our purpose only in terms of going to heaven when we die, getting up out of here, leaving everyone else behind. The good news is that God in Christ is setting things right, and that is a deep and a broad promise that has implications in this world and the world to come. We're the kingdom of God here in the present, the place where God reigns, where he rules. That means we're a foretaste of that eternal kingdom. We are, in Paul's words, God's co-workers. We're his partners here in carrying out his mission in the world. So we need to demonstrate his love to humanity in every way. I think of a, a song that unfortunately is not in our song books, but it's in one other hymnal that's commonly used, Praise for the Lord, and this song is called The World's Bible. I don't know if you're familiar with this one or not, but in thinking about how our songs can teach us, Christ has no hands but our hands to do his work today. He has no feet but our feet to lead men in the way. He has no tongue but our tongues to tell men how he died. He has no help but our help to bring them to his side. 
What if our hands are busy with other things than His? What if our feet are walking where sin's allurement is? What if our tongues are speaking of things His life would spurn? How can we hope to help Him and welcome His return? In this country, we've been blessed with every imaginable physical blessing. We have food enough and to spare. We have an abundance of clothing so that we can change it whenever we want to just because of style or because of occasion or because of the season. We have fabulous houses. We have great, reliable cars to drive around. In medical care, in education, in recreation, in transportation, on and on and on we could go with the ways that we've been blessed that so many in the world don't have, either historically or now for that matter. And we add to all that the fact that we have free access to the Scriptures. And there's no impediment to us becoming Christians. Again, something that doesn't exist in much of the world. You see, with all that blessing comes a tremendous responsibility to those who are in need. And now my purpose this morning isn't to lay out any sort of program either for the church or to tell you individually what you need to be doing and how you need to be doing it. Each of us individually as Christians will have to look for our own opportunities where they permit, where our time and our talents and our resources may take us, ways that we can help others and fulfill this duty that we have. We have to use our own ingenuity to try to figure out how to serve others as best we can. But the point is, we need to be concerned about doing that. We need to have a deep and abiding concern for those who are in need, all of these needs that we've talked about this morning. And if we have that concern and we have that dedication, we'll find a way, individually and collectively. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, of course, salvation is the greatest need that you have. And we talked about the fact that Jesus came primarily to free people from that bondage of sin. And so I want to encourage you to become a Christian today. Put your trust in Jesus to turn from a life of sin, turn to God in repentance, be buried with him in baptism, have your sins washed away, be added to God's people and begin that life of service to God and to others. But if you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, remember this, this is extremely important. We haven't only been saved from something, we've been saved for something. We're not just saved from sin and hell and death. We're saved in order to partner with God and to image him in this world, to serve him and to serve others. So whatever your particular case may be this morning, let's become Christians, and if we've done that, let's live in such a way so that at the end we may hear, like those in Matthew 25, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If you need to make changes to hear those words this morning, it's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.